God's people said amen and amen. Today our scripture passage is from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. I invite you to take your Bibles and open them and follow along if you'd like and uh, the words will also be on the screen up ahead. Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22. Then then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. More often than not, Christians hold values that are different from the values of our government. This is nothing new. As Christians, we are pilgrims on a journey strangers in a foreign land, citizens of heaven, and we are also citizens of these United States. And no matter what side of the political aisle you might be on, there's always going to be something you find a challenge, a differing of belief or opinion with something or someone in government. This passage of Scripture has often been used to encourage us as Christians to be good citizens. And good citizens we should be. Good citizens who pay their taxes and live as productive people in the land. We could say that this passage encourages us to pay our taxes and just to be good people. But I believe that it's a lot more than that. I believe that Jesus here is implying that the government and our faith coexist. We would say the church and the government coexist. That one does not dictate to or reign supreme over the other. Let me suggest that while this is a good reading 
that there's more to consider for those of us whose citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. The context of this passage is in the temple courts in Jerusalem. It's early in the last week of Jesus' life. He has been persecuted again and again. The Pharisees and the Herodians are the audience. The disciples are there. The crowds are also there. And while the Herodians and the Pharisees are all religious leaders, they had significant differences. They were not natural allies. The Herodians supported the rule of the Herods, who cooperated with the Roman leaders and was given authority by them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were among the Jewish leaders who believed that their legalistic interpretation of the law, the Torah, was the one to be obeyed. These religious leaders loved political power more than God and neighbor. They loved their religious power more than God and neighbor. They loved their money more than God and neighbor. They loved their religious traditions more than God and neighbor. They loved their interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures more than God and neighbor. They were the epitome of hypocrisy. They were blind to God, to God's love and God's word, God's truth and God's son. But what these two groups did, these differing groups, was to get together and confront Jesus in the temple courts. They set aside their differences to attack a common enemy. This would be like the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles joining together to play against the Washington Redskins folks. And in the first part of our passage, verse 15, you see that they set out to trap Jesus. They laid out plans to trap Jesus. And the Greek word used for trap is the same word that would describe an animal trap. And back then, it would have been much more brutal than the little cage up on the screen that my friend Norman uses to catch squirrels in his backyard. He's my running buddy. Just this past week, we were running together early in the morning, and he said, Bob, I have caught 26 squirrels this year. (laughs) What do you do with them, Norman? I take them out to Powhatan. (laughs) If your population of squirrels is increasing, y'all who live in Powhatan, you can just thank my good buddy, Norman. (laughs) These religious leaders said all kinds of flattering things to Jesus to trap him. They said... We know you're a man of integrity. You're walking right. You know, we know you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You're not swayed by others. You're not a respecter of who they are. You're not influenced by that. So with all those wonderful flattering words, they said, so tell us your opinion Is it okay? Is it right? Is it appropriate? Is it acceptable to pay the poll tax or the imperial tax that funded Roman occupation? So if Jesus answers yes, then the crowds who followed him would be turned into opposition. If he answered no, then those would turn him in for treason, which could have catastrophic ending. They have him trapped either way, or so they thought. But in verse 18, Jesus responds to these people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, with the word, you hypocrites. He called them hypocrites. 
In ancient Greek literature, the actors wore masks while they were on stage, and the word upokrites means actor or one who plays a part, and they would wear masks. In Greek theater, this is not a negative word, but in the New Testament, it is used exclusively in this way. Jesus isn't interested in actors, but real people with real sins that need real forgiveness. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, show me the coin. Show me the coin that you're going to use to pay this Roman poll tax. Show me the coin. And Jesus responds in a very shrewd way. Very wise way. It's almost like Jesus says, just like Cuba Gooding Jr. did in the Jerry Maguire film some years ago, show me the money. Or as the modern commercial says, what's in your wallet? And they produce a coin, and then Jesus holds up the coin and says, whose image and whose inscription? Whose image and whose inscription? See, a Roman coin would have had the image of the Caesar engraved on it or stamped into it. And the inscription would be something along the lines of Caesar is divine or Caesar is God. Whose image is it and whose inscription? The word translated image is icon, the, the Greek word icon. And then whose signature or whose inscription? The Greek word is epigraph. So whose image and whose signature is on the coin? Icons are known to us throughout the years as things that we use as tools to worship. In the early Orthodox Church, for example, many Icons were used to assist in worship. We have a beautiful stained glass window before you up above the baptistry area that is an icon. It helps us to worship. It's a tool. It's not to be worshipped, but it helps us. Young people on your phones have a lot of icons. YouTube, Facebook. Well, young people don't use Facebook, but we old people do. Instagram, Snapchat, and so forth. These represent something else. Point us to something. So in the word for inscription, he says whose name on it, whose name is on it, and you can see their cunning smiles, and you can hear their wicked snares. Finally, we got him trapped. There's no way he can get out of this now. But as one scholar states, when Jesus asks them for the tax coin, they unsuspectingly reach into their purses and withdraw the evidence that exposes them, not him, as deceptive and hypocritical compromisers. They are the ones carrying around Caesar's money, not Jesus. They are the ones who have the emperor's image in their pocketbooks. They are the ones who have already bought into the pagan system. And Jesus responds with an imperative that leaves the Pharisees and the Herodians amazed. Message translation by Eugene Peterson says it like this. They were left speechless and shaking 
their heads. They just didn't know what to do with this Jesus. So what are we supposed to do with this today? As Baptist Christians, we can make a number of applications. Historically, we Baptists have stood for religious freedom. We advocate a separation from church and government. We cherish political involvement as citizens of the United States, but we hold a higher citizenship, which as Paul writes in Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven. Baptists have been jailed and persecuted and tortured and killed for standing for religious freedom, for preaching without a license. We historically have sought to protect the individual freedom of conscience, the freedom of the soul of the individual person, This means that people can choose no religion if they so desire, but we advocate for the freedom of the soul that people, each person, one-on-one, can come to Jesus Christ and reach and be brought to a relationship with, with the Heavenly Father. We advocate for a free church, for the autonomy of the local church, and stand against an establishment of a state religion. We are citizens of heaven. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are strangers in a foreign land. We are pilgrims along the journey of an, in a, on a narrow road. And that is one w- very, very appropriate way that we can look at this text and apply it to our lives today. But I think that there's even more. Like Jesus, we face tough questions. Often the lines are blurred. Our government makes decisions that we don't understand or don't agree with. The image on the coins of government are often worn smooth like an old nickel that's been in somebody's pocket for 50 years. It is sometimes hard to distinguish the limits of government in the realm of religion. We face tough questions. And I'm sad that there's so much division in our country today. I am saddened that there is so much division among Christians today who have allowed partisan politics to divide them in their churches. We are above that. We are citizens of heaven. The second thing I want to say to echo that is, as Christians, we worship only God. Enough said. We worship only God. We do not worship government. We do not worship the president, no matter who that president might be. We do not worship political parties. We are citizens of heaven. We worship God and God alone. So what do we give to Caesar? Well, we should be good citizens. I want to be a good citizen. I want to be responsible with the taxes that I owe. I like driving on nice roads. I like street, street lamps at night. Steve, I like law enforcement protecting us. Thank you. Many of you are teachers in the public school system, and I'm thankful that I can have a little part in helping you to have the job that you do through the tax system. I enjoy state parks. I like clean drinking water that comes through the municipal water system. And don't you love to have the sewage taken away? Yeah? Those are things we often take for granted. I'm glad that we have regulations that keep our food and consumer goods safe. 
And we can go on and on. We benefit from many things in our society because we are citizens of the government and we all contribute through the taxes that we pay. Little side note, in preparation for today, I read about a church that had the treasurer's office in their locality calculate what their property tax would be on their church buildings and their land and all all that they would be responsible for if they had a commercial building and not a, a building that was exempt because of religious causes. They calculated that amount of money and then each year they determine which local school is in need and they give that school the money. Now that's radical thinking. And I imagine that God is blessing that church because of what they're doing. We are called to give back to Caesar, the government, what's the government. What do we give God? This is what Jesus says. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give back to God what is God's. And the word give in Jesus' answer can be translated give back. We see the same usage in the parable of the unforgiving servant and the parable of the tenants that you can read a little bit before today's passage. The word carries the sense of giving back which already belong, that which already belongs to another person or entity. So when Jesus says give back the things of Caesar and the things of God, he is denoting possession. These things belong to Caesar and to God. And how do we know which things belong to Caesar? Jesus makes it so clear because he says, whose face is on it? Whose image does it bear? Whose image is impressed into the coin or engraved into the coin? Whose epigraph is on it? And that's your answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians. But then he says, give back to God what is God's. How do we know what things belong to God? How do we know? They have his image on them. The word for image we talked about earlier is icon. That same word, Greek word, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. When God said, let us make mankind in our image, the same word is icon. Let us make mankind in our icon, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and all of the wild animals, over all of the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We find this in Genesis 5.1, Genesis 9.6. This is what scholars called imago dei, created in the image of God. So what are we then to God? We are the things stamped with his seal. And in the Pauline epistles, he talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Created in the image of God, stamped with his seal, we are in God's likeness. And if Jesus says you're supposed to give the coin that's got Caesar's image on it back to Caesar, 
then what are we supposed to do with ourselves who are stamped with the image of the living God? Well, we give our whole selves, not just a part, but the whole self. I read this story in preparing for today, and it centers in the, the Gallic people. They were a warlike people who in ancient times inhabited what is now France and Belgium. They spoke a Celtic language and were Druidic by religion. And by the time the Christian era had come, they were conquered by the Roman Empire. They were under Roman control. And the extent of this control varied, but the Gauls never did take too well to being conquered. And there were numerous Gallic uprisings. A number of Christian missionaries ventured into Gallic territory, and over time, many of these Gauls became Christian. And as the story goes, when a converted warrior was baptized in a river or a stream, he would hold one arm high as the missionary baptized him so that that arm would not get wet. And it seemed peculiar as the missionaries tried to figure out, well, what's going on here? But then, as... The Gallic people were often known to do, they would get called into battle, and these Christian people would run out into the next skirmish or battle, take that arm that was held up and grab their axe or their battle, the club or sword, and run off to battle because this arm, they would say, is not baptized. This story may not be historically accurate. It may be an urban legend, and I'm not upholding the behavior that they exhibited, but the image is so compelling, the picture of someone, anyone, trying to keep part of their body, one aspect of their identity, free from the influence of baptism. Because we are created in the image of God. Every tiny part of us. This means that the tiniest parts of our body, the smallest thoughts of our heads, belong to God. It is said, some may give their minds to God, but have hearts far from God. Some may give their hearts, but are unwilling to learn from God in the word. Some may give God their muscles, but are unwilling to bring their bodies to worship or Christian education classes. Many give God one or two hours a week. But God wants all 168 hours in the week. And many give 2% of their income. Others might give 10, but God wants it all. We cannot say that this little part or that little part belongs to God, so I'll give it. Everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. Everything we are and everything we have, we are compelled to give to God, to give back to God. We are but managers or stewards of the gifts that God has so freely given to us. And today we call each other back to God's word and promise and charge that we are made in God's image and in God's likeness. And if we are created in the image of God, if we are in God's likeness, then we are called to live in such a way that people in the community can see the family resemblance. Let us pray.
creating and loving God. You did not just create everything and put it into motion and then move on. You are intimately involved in the activity of this world, this universe. It's a mysterious thing to us. We can't even comprehend how you have dominion over all, but we trust you and we have faith that you do, that you are at work. And I know that you've been at work among us today. I've heard it in the singing of our youth. I've heard it in your word, through the children's message, through prayer, and through the wonderful, beautiful faces of those who are gathered in this room today, hugging each other, shaking hands with each other. You're at work. And you've called us to be part of your greater family, citizens of heaven. You're called to be in your image. Help us to go into the world that others might see the family resemblance. Through our words and our deeds. 